Hey y'all, and welcome to Texla True Crime, the podcast covering homicides, missing people, and well, anything else that I want to talk about in my home states of Texas and Louisiana. I'm Lisa, your host, and while I try to keep my language PG, every now and then a swear or two might slip out. Sources I use to write this story will be in a Google Doc that I will link to in the show notes. And due to the subject matter of this show, please use caution when listening around your kids. Today's episode is going to be pretty heavy as it involves sexual assault against minors. There are a variety of animals who run this house who may or may not be in and out while I'm recording. So if you hear, you know, a doggy noise, a kitty noise, it's it's just life with Lisa. If you have any corrections or comments or just want to say, hey, my contact information will be listed at the end of the episode. And please stick around to hear a promo from my friend Jenny over at It's Murder up north. She covers cases up in the north of England and focuses on remembering who the victims were, which, as you know, is very special to my heart. And y'all, as you may have noticed, I've not released anything in a few weeks. Adjusting to the new normal quite honestly has overwhelmed me and I retreated a bit to help cope with things mentally and just focus on being around the kids and learning how to work from home efficiently. It's just been a lot. So I needed to take a little time for myself. And if you need to do the same thing in your life, it's totally okay. And I hope that if you're facing some struggles mentally with the pandemic and its effects, reach out. We all feel really alone right now, but there are resources available. And thanks to the internet, we can all sort of stay connected. But today, we are back in the city that shaped my childhood, New Orleans. And at the end of the episode, I'm going to read you a list of New Orleans facts as our little palate cleanser. But let's get started on today's case. Sometimes I need to sit with a case a while before I write the episode, and this is one of those instances. I don't really know why this hits home so hard for me. The age of the victim, and it turns out victims, being near my own son's ages, the victim shaming in the press, and perhaps worst of all, the utter abuse of authority that takes place in this case and so many others. But in the city, the Desire Street Wharf is located in the Bywater neighborhood which is part of the Upper Ninth Ward. And yes, Tennessee Williams' streetcar named Desire refers to the former streetcar line to the street. The southern boundary of the neighborhood is the mighty Mississippi River, the industrial canal to the east, making it like much of New Orleans, surrounded by water. Eddie Wells was not the first young person to be pulled from the murky and muddy Mississippi, but the investigation into his death would span more than twice of how long the child lived on Earth. On May 9th, 1982, the 17-year-old boy, known as Eddie Dirt, or Little Eddie, was found by a worker on the Desire Street Wharf. He was dressed in a red t-shirt, blue jeans, white socks, and blue tennis shoes. He was just a kid, short, thin, with blonde shoulder-length hair. Eddie spent an estimated four days in the Mississippi, and because of this, his cause of death was difficult to determine. But finally, Dr. Frank Mignard, an obstetrician acting as coroner, determined that he died of asphyxia due to drowning, since there were really no obvious signs of injury. His case was not listed as homicide or suicide or anything of the like, just undetermined. Eddie did not have an idyllic life. He was what was known back then as a hustler in the French Quarter, meaning he was a sex worker selling his young body for money on which he would survive. 
New Orleans for all of its reputation as a safe haven for the LGBTQ plus community. It's still a city in the Deep South. Nine years earlier, a gay club named the Upstairs Lounge was targeted by an arsonist. That attack took 32 lives. If you want more information on the Upstairs Lounge fire, please check out the excellent episode done by Erica at Southern Fried True Crime. Suffice it to say, hate is alive and well in the Crescent City, just like anywhere else. Since the age of 13, Eddie was preyed upon by older pedophiles who used him to fulfill their twisted fantasies. He made money, sure, but he was a victim, plain and simple. No child should ever be in a situation where they have to sell their body to survive. It's a damn shame he was made out to be anything but a victim. He certainly was in no way hustling or taking advantage of men. He was a child, and those who exploited him should have been locked away. But like so many times, the victim is portrayed as part of the problem. He grew up with his mother and at least one brother, and his mother tried to get her family away from the quarter and from the dangers that lurked within. She moved across the lake to Covington, a bedroom community on the northern shores of Lake Pontchartrain. But Eddie was back on the streets in the quarter in the spring of 1982. It's reported that he was making something like $600 a week for a 17-year-old kid in 1982. That's a lot of money. I can understand why he found it hard to get away from that, especially when you've got other people at home who depend on you. Before his disappearance, he took the bus to his brother's house in the city, bringing several possessions along with him, apparently planning to stay for good. He didn't get the chance to start any kind of new life. Detective Stanley Burkhart regardless of what the coroner found, came out early claiming that Eddie was murdered. Detective Burkhart began working for the NOPD in 1972 and began the first pedophile unit in the city. He knew Eddie. He would take him to pick up football games. He said that before his death, his mother had received a phone call saying, you'll never see your son alive again. He followed that by bringing up Eddie's dangerous lifestyle and his habit of hustling older men for money. He said that apparently the young man had gotten into the wrong car. Eddie kept on him a list of names of his customers in a wallet which was not found on his body. Therefore, he must have been killed to keep the identity of one of his abusers private. The pioneer of the pedophile unit, the savior of the street victims of the quarter, Detective Stanley Burkhart, is now a convicted child molester. In 1987, he was convicted of five counts of trafficking in child porn. He was sentenced to 10 years and served, oh, a little bit more than five. After his release, he confessed to sexually abusing three of his nieces and nephews. Pedophiles frequently don't have a gender preference. They just like prepubescent children. In 1998, he pled guilty, again, to possession of child pornography. Upon a search of his home, a 12-year-old boy was found inside. He was released in 2006, but returned to prison several months later for violating his probation. In 2011, a federal proceeding was held in North Carolina, which I'm not quite sure when he was in North Carolina, but I believe it was possibly the 98 arrest. Regardless, was held to determine whether or not he could be classified as a sexually dangerous person. This classification would allow him to remain in prison for life for his crimes. He was classified as such and remained in federal prison until 2015 when he was released on parole after completing psychological treatment. 
During the 2011 classification proceeding, testimony came out tying Burkhart to the Wells case in a new and horrifying way. A man named Richard Winman gave testimony at this 2011 hearing talking about the dangers that Detective Burkhart presented. He was introduced to Burkhart after suffering abuse by his Boy Scout leaders. Burkhart was the officer in charge of helping the boy, of going after his abusers and putting them in jail or under the jail if I were on the jury. So what did he do? He began abusing him. He was taken to the evidence room where he was shown child pornography and then abused. One man said that Burkhart would ask him if he knew of Eddie, a piece of shit hustler from the quarter. But when Winman said that he didn't, Burkhart allegedly showed him a photo of the decomposing body of the teenager and asked if he wanted to end up that way. He would say, do you want to end up like Eddie? Do you, Richard? These horrific tactics didn't stop Winman. He allegedly reported the abuse at the time to the NOPD, but there was no result. And let me say again, I support the police as a whole. I think they're brave men and women who believe in their sworn duty to serve and protect. But when some wear the badge as a cover under which to commit the most heinous of offenses against the innocent, it pisses me the hell off. I hope it angers you as well. Somebody needs to watch the watchers. I will get off my soapbox for a little while. Winman testified that he was abused over 40 times by Burkhart. He was only 13 when Burkhart first showed him the picture of the body of Eddie Wells. And when Winman told him that he would no longer put up with his abuse, Burkhart allegedly grabbed him by the throat, put a service pistol in his mouth, and threatened his life. Nice guy. A man named Vic Groomer came forward and spoke with the Washington Post in 2018. He too had been victimized by Burkhart. Burkhart moved into an apartment complex managed by his parents. They probably thought it'd be great to have a police officer on site, especially one who did so much to protect children. Groomer said that he was abused hundreds of times by Burkhart. He too was shown the photo of Eddie Wells' body in order to keep quiet about the abuse. Y'all know where there are two that have come forward? There are so many more living with the trauma. Trauma that was doled out by a sorry excuse for a human being who was placed in charge of keeping them safe. And as of the last article I read, claims of both Groomer and Wyndham are under investigation. In July of 2019, Burkhart was arrested again for making disturbing comments on photos of young boys on the image sharing site Flickr. One of the most disturbing comments I saw was, Boys in their unguarded moments are essentially sensual. After this arrest, he was released on bond, but his freedom did not last very long. Federal parole authorities out of North Carolina took him into custody on parole violations. In addition to the possession of the child pornography, he wasn't complying with his sex offender registry obligations. And please do know that I am wearing my shocked face right now. It's just shocking that he would not comply. Most heartbreakingly of all, three more murders have come to light that might be tied to Burkhart. Dennis Turcotte, Raymond Richardson, and Daniel Dewey were young men killed in a 21-month span in the late 1970s. Their bodies just dumped around the region. All three had been strangled. All three were French Quarter regulars. At this time, Burkhart has not been officially listed as a suspect in their deaths, nor even the death of Eddie Wells. But it looks like the dots are being connected, and maybe, maybe, some 40-odd years later, 
some justice will finally be served. If you want further information on this case, look into the podcast New Orleans Unsolved, which produces a long-form show about this case. It's run by a husband and wife team of investigative journalists. Now, this episode is probably going to be about 20-odd minutes uh, summarizing all of the reports that I found in the case. This podcast that I'm talking about, New Orleans Unsolved, is run by The Real Deal, the incredibly talented investigative journalists who are out there digging for the information that me and so many of my peers rely on. I've not yet listened to it, so I don't unwittingly color my own writing, but I'm very much looking forward to listening to it. I think we all could use a little bit of something a little fun or a little more informative, so let's talk some New Orleans trivia. Despite what many people may think, The popular Bourbon Street was not named after the whiskey. It was actually named after the Bourbon Dynasty of France. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but Mardi Gras masks are not just for fun. It is illegal to ride on a Mardi Gras float in New Orleans without one. The spikes on many poles in the city used to be used to protect the daughters of French aristocrats from unwanted suitors. Today, they're still helpful, but only to prevent Mardi Gras goers from climbing up the poles. And may I just say, I've been in the quarter when it's not Mardi Gras, and I think they're useful for more than just that area. Each seat in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome is a different color than the one next to it. The coloring makes it seem like the stadium has a full house, even if it doesn't. Antoine's Restaurant in the French Quarter is the oldest continuously run restaurant in Louisiana, established in 1840. New Orleans has more mileage of canals, both above and below ground, than Venice and Italy. New Orleans dentist Levi Spear Parmley invented the very first form of dental floss. New Orleans was home to the world's first permanent for-profit movie theater, Vitascope Hall. And while most agree that New Orleans is the birthplace of jazz, the specific creator of jazz is debated. Some say the music style was born in 1895 when Buddy Bolden started his first band. Others say jazz originated when Nick LaRocca and his band recorded their first jazz record. The death mask of the French military and political leader Napoleon Bonaparte is housed in the Louisiana State Museum in New Orleans. Baton Rouge may be Louisiana's capital today, but New Orleans was named state capital twice, once as the capital of the French colony of Louisiana and again for the state in 1864. The first game of poker was played in New Orleans in the 19th century using a 20-card pack. The St. Louis Cathedral in Jackson Square is the oldest continuously used cathedral in the U.S. New Orleans is often called the Crescent City because of the distinctive curve of the Mississippi that runs right through it. City Park, one of the largest urban parks in the nation, used to be a favorite spot for Creole men to meet and duel with pistols and swords. The New Orleans-based music group, the Dixie Cups, beat out the Beatles for the top spot on the Billboard Hot 100 list in 1964 with their song Chapel of Love, which makes me think of the movie Adventures in Babysitting. I love that movie. Canal Street was once planned to be an actual canal, but the waterway was never constructed and now it acts as one of New Orleans' busiest streets instead. The first opera in America, Ernest Gretry's Sylvain, clearly I practice pronunciations before I record, was performed in New Orleans in 1796. New Orleans was the first site of Italian immigration in the United States. It also had the largest Italian population in the country until New York and Baltimore became the preferred immigrant destinations. There are still huge Italian culture in New Orleans, and the St. Charles Streetcar is one of the country's only mobile national monuments. So that's all I've got today, y'all. 
Next week, we are back in Texas with another listener request and a case from my current neck of the woods. And I promise it will be next week. I'm back on track, you guys. I promise. (laughs) Don't forget to listen to the promo from Murder Up North after the show. And if you want to get in touch with me, please email me at texlatruecrimepod at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at texlatruecrime, Instagram at texlatruecrimepod, and on Facebook as Lisa Texla. Finally, if you'd like to support my little independently produced podcast, you can do so at paypal.me forward slash texlatruecrime. I would appreciate you subscribing, and if you're willing, I would love a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help get word of my little show out there. Y'all leave the world a little bit better than you found it this morning. Support your healthcare workers, and always, always, always watch out for motorcycles on the road. Bye, y'all. Hi, I'm Jenny, the host of It's Murder Up North. If you're curious about the murderous north of England, this podcast is definitely for you. I've lived in various parts of the north of England. I went to college in the shadow of Saddleworth Moor, where Myra Hindley and Ian Brady buried those five innocent children. I've worked in the city of Leeds, where the Yorkshire Ripper targeted his victims in the 1970s. Knowing how geographically close I've been to these crimes made me curious, and that curiosity became this podcast. However, my main hope is to help you see the person, not the victim.